recognise the majority of populations will be the only piece of jargon I'm using today. It's, it's a European-wide study funded by the Open Society Foundation, and white working class didn't work in some countries, but for, for how we understand it, it's white working class communities and social cohesion. So we completed the research about a year ago, um, after spending about a year doing uh, in-depth research to find out about the lived experiences of people in a particular area in, in Manchester. But I think it's more relevant now, perhaps, than ever. I was watching Question Time yesterday, and there's a, we have seen 35% of people who haven't voted, a lot of people who voted UKIP, and some of the, the issues that have come up with people being disengaged from the political pro, process, um, angry at politics. I think they're still there, more resonant than ever, um, with perhaps none of the mainstream parties dealing with the issues. Um, so just really quickly, Social Action Research Foundation, which I'm a co-director, we're a think tank based in Manchester doing anti-poverty research. We're doing some projects at the moment on um, everyday life in Salford, so we're working with people around photography to take photos of their everyday experiences in terms of struggles and support. And what's been quite interesting there is some of the findings there are really echoing what we, what we found in High Blakely. Um, we're doing work around challenging media stereotypes, so all the, the benefits street type programs that um, stigmatise people in poverty and then influence policy through that we're aiming to challenge that and then we're doing some work on food austerity with Salford University so looking at the rise in food poverty um, Open Society Foundations at Home in Europe uh, project so Nazia here is the programme director um, does research and advocacy throughout Europe looking at um, issues around tolerance and inclusion um, and they've done some fantastic work on Muslim communities, Somali communities, and Europe's white working class communities, which I'd, I'd urge everyone to have a look at. It's really fantastic. So the report I'm about to talk about was commissioned by the Open Society Foundations, and they designed the methodology for it. So it was done across six European cities, which are Aarhus in Denmark, Amsterdam, Berlin, Gothenburg, Lyon, and Manchester. Uh, so it's a comparative bit of research um, looking at the lived experiences and the concerns of white working class communities. So these are some of the issues that came out across, across the six cities. Um, so the rise of service, service industries over the last 20, 30 years and deindustrialisation and how that's eroded the traditional working class jobs that used to exist and how that's had an impact on identity and belonging of people. The rise of economic insecurity and precarious work amongst a lot of people we spoke to. The withdrawal of the welfare state and uh, the rise in inequalities within society. I mean, I was just walking from the hotel to here this morning and I couldn't find a supermarket. There was a poor showroom and, and all these places. And I just thought it's a, it's a million miles away from Blake or, or even place in Manchester. Um, so Higher Blakely is the northernmost ward in Manchester. This is the indices of multiple deprivation which um, show that Blakely is not the most deprived ward in the city. Um, but before, before I sort of talk about some of the findings which in terms of social cohesion might be seen as quite negative, I just want to say the area is fant a fantastic area with there's a, the biggest municipal park in the area in, in Europe, Heaton Park, really strong communities. We were there for about a year. Um, People were really warm and welcoming, and it might not come through when I'm talking about some of the issues that people were talking about, but I think it's important to state it at the beginning. For the methodology, what we did was 12 different focus groups on different themes, so health, education, police and security, um, different age groups, housing, um, 
and part of that was trying to find people who get eight people or ten people to a focus group who didn't know each other. So for the first few months we spent ages trying to gather a database and make sure the people who one person didn't know each other and then every time we did a focus group people knew each other. They're like, oh you're right or like they knew each other's mums or they knew and I think that that really showed the the nature of the community in Blakely that people had lived there for many years had got to know each other and it would, it was hard to find people who didn't know each other who who were from the historic communities there. So why, why did we choose Higher Blakely? You might not be able to see, but basically the dark blue with, um, in 2007 there's 28% of people who voted in the local e elections for BNP and then carried on and then it went down and UKIP have sort of taken over. Not, we don't know if they're the same voters who did it and recently uh, BNP have disappeared but UKIP's vote in the local elections has gone quite high. The, not got a seat, they've not got one seat in Manchester either, it's uh, 96 councillors, all of whom are Labour. There was one councillor who wasn't a Labour councillor in Manchester, and he used to be a Labour councillor, and he, he only left the party because they were building a football stadium in his, in his world, so it's a Labour-dominated area. Um, I think turnout tends to be about 30, 20 to 30% in local elections, so it's a strong Labour council but that doesn't necessarily mean everyone is supportive of Labour in the city. Um, it's also got some areas that are high levels of deprivation so some of the highest levels of child poverty in the city which we'll talk about in a bit with 50% but other areas with 20% which is low for Manchester so it's a, it's a small ward with about 10,000 people but differences within the area as well. So we thought it would be a really interesting case study to focus on really in depth um, to try and speak to people there. The ethnicity in Higher Blakely, so it's about 80% um, white British. Um, even though when we spoke to people there, they said, oh, we're becoming the minority now. Um, but really, it's a, it's, Manchester has high levels of di ethnic diversity for, for the north of England, certainly. Higher Blakely is quite a white working class area. Historically, it always has been. Um, this was from the 2011 census, but I think things are changing slightly with African... Um, migrants coming into the area but it is still predominantly white and working class there. As I mentioned inequalities within the ward again don't need to see the figures I've just put them up and th these pictures are a bit disingenuous no one actually lives in this it's uh, this is uh, in Heaton Park I thought uh, just as, as an example of inequalities so some, some of the areas yeah 55% of children living in child poverty in one of the lower super output areas and 25% in another so you, you really got quite high levels of difference within it and Manchester's approach to um, governance in the city is a ward based approach so they have ward level meetings with all the service providers, the councillors, uh, finances are directed to ward level this sort of thing and I think what our research has shown in one way is that that can hide some of the poverty that happens because the, where we've shown the other, there's other areas that are, have higher concentrations of poverty across the area and they get resources targeted for them, whereas Higher Blakely doesn't always get um, what's perceived. And there was one focus group we did with um, some young fathers in the primary school and they were like, Mark, uh, Harper Hay gets, um, they get new windows and doors because they're always causing trouble. And Mostyn gets all this and he's like, what, what do we get? We get you two. We get you two researchers coming to talk about it and nothing's going to happen. Um, 
And I think the perception that they, they, because they're well-behaved, this was what people said, they're well-behaved and that there's not high levels of poverty there, that they don't get the investment that they feel they deserve. When we put that to the leader of the council, Sir Richard Lees, he, he quite rightly stated as well, there's been a new school there in the area, um, which replaced the old Plant Hill School, which I think had one of the highest levels of truancy in the country. And now it's, a, it's an academy, it's got really high levels of achievement. We've got a new library. Um, all the, all the houses have been done up despite the people saying they didn't get the windows and doors as early as the other area. So there has been that investment into the physical infrastructure, but there's still the sense from people that they've been left behind. Whether that's from the council or, or the government, I don't think people made that much distinction between it, really. So employment. Uh, High Blakely used to have the ICI, which is chemical um, works, and in this, I think in the 60s, in the peak of peak of its powers it employed 14,000 people just so the older residents we spoke to said you could leave one job walk out go to another there was always employment there in factories quite skilled work um, and that that slowly went and I think it's sort of a reflection of what's happened to British industry so it's production went down then it's got sold off into different companies now it's owned by AstraZeneca I think they employ about 200 people there the biggest employees in the ward are two supermarkets, which I won't name. Um, so so that, I think that symbolises what's happened um, to employment for working class communities over the last 20 to 30 years. It's been this uh, steady, secure, skilled work that's been replaced by insecure and low paid work. Um, so there's a difference, I think, with, with the gender roles as well, which um, I'll go on to in a bit. But, Basically, there's this, this replacement of the uh, secure work with this idea of the low pay, no pay cycle that uh, professors Rob McDonald's and Tracy Shildrick have written a fantastic book about. <coughs> People being in low pay, then coming out, getting uh, made redundant or sacked, then going back into low paid work. And it's this churn that people aren't often unemployed for years. I mean, this, there are some people with disabilities and mental health issues, but a lot of people are coming in and out of work, but it's then hard to plan for a future. I mean, we spoke to people about, when we were speaking about housing, uh, and not many people wanted, like the idea of a mortgage because they knew that they couldn't be secure in it. Um, also, it affects people's benefits if they're coming in and out of work that you have to apply, reapply, and you could be for quite a while without any benefits. So the security that people once felt in work has disappeared, really. I think for most people we spoke to, in, there's a woman here, she said, it's all, all people who are working are feeling the squeeze. One woman who's talking about how prices have gone up hugely relative to um, wages, she's like, need to get a mortgage now to get a piece of fish, which I think is a slight over-exaggeration. Um, but but people, people's living standards are going, even if they're two, um, two parent households with children and they're both working, people are really struggling, feeling the pinch. Um, don't feel like there's jobs being created and even in the sort of economic boom times people didn't feel particularly that they were benefiting from it I think. Um, in terms of migration and attitudes towards it people that some people that we spoke to felt that even when there were good construction jobs for instance happening that they wouldn't get the jobs and it would be Polish immigrants who would get the jobs ahead of them and they'd be pushing wages down. This perception was really quite strong when we spoke to people. This pie chart just shows that the, the majority of people are employed within sectors that are um, more likely to be low-paid and precarious within the area. Um, with the, the 
gender as well, so women are even more likely to be employed within these low-paid sectors. Uh, and there's also a gender pay gap as well um, within the constituency, which is quite significant, I think. And the few women we spoke to, we did a focus group with some um, women under 35 years old, and this young woman said, uh, men can just go out and get a job, can't they? We've got to be at home with the kids. They can travel as far as they want. They don't have a problem going to town to find a job and they don't have to wait around school for the kids. And th this isn't really recognised, I don't think, in a lot of the employment um, policy that's happening in the city, which focuses on the, let's get them supply, on the supply side where it's, people need to have the right motivations to move to work, people are lacking the skills, but a lot of the people we spoke to, one, in fact, everyone that we spoke to who was of working age wanted to work, not everyone could or felt that they could. So we spoke to one woman who'd been unemployed for a few years, there was no jobs here in the local area. The, the city push has been towards the south of the city where there's the airport, there's the universities within the centre, there's this knowledge economy. But a lot of the jobs there will be low paid and people are saying, well, if they've got to travel an hour and a half to get to the work, they don't want to because they don't want to leave their children if their kids are in school and were to get ill, that they value being a mother more than this and that the insecurity of work, at least with benefits, it, they've, it's not an enjoyable life, it's not a lifestyle that people would choose, but they have that security where the housing is covered, they're around for their children. And I think this perception of working class communities at the moment, and especially people on benefits, sometimes misses out the nuance of why people might not be able to work, um, or why they might not choose to within their value system. So we found widespread mental health problems in the area, so there's, th this is a graph of antidepressants across Manchester, well, across Greater Manchester, so that have been since uh, ah, the last few years anyway. So it's basically uh, antidepressants are getting prescribed very, very easily. People go to the doctors, they say, the doctor just says, here, have some tablets, and that's it, they go away. Um, but there's a lot more people who haven't gone to the doctors who were talking about mental health issues. Um, I can send out a more detailed graph of it, um, that would either stop them getting involved in the community, make them feel more insecure in their lives, or um, really stop, stop them from participating in social life in their communities. Um, spoke to a few different people who said they'd gone to the doctors and there was no support available, so this woman said she waited six months. And I think in the focus group I was a bit stupid. I was like, oh, didn't you say anything? Why didn't you complain? And her response was, well, I, I didn't have the motivation or energy to be able to complain. And a lot of people spoke about the doctors not being sympathetic with, with some of the issues that they had. And I think this connecting to people's attitudes towards immigration, which I'm going to go on, is that there's this huge levels of insecurity around work, where people have felt that where they once had security, it's disappeared. And at the same time, there's, there's anxiety within a lot of people to do with many different things and you can't say it's because of in-school work or it's because of this but it's something that needs to be explored more is why people are feeling so anxious about life in general and how that's affecting their mental health and their attitudes towards different people. So as the welfare state's been withdrawn so the public services are less available, health workers um, have been cut recently and the the services aren't there where they want to use to be. A short start's been reduced in the services they want provided. People are relying more on their community networks of support that they had. So I spoke about everyone knowing 
seeming to know each other within the focus groups. There's generations of families who have all lived there for, for since the 30s and 40s, and they've all grown up on the same street, and they know each other. And remember one woman, we're about to show a video, it was her actually, it said you, she knows she could let her daughter out because there's certain points along her route that she knows people that would watch out for her and make sure she's okay. People even spoke about relying on uh, community networks before they'd phone the police if there was an emergency. Uh, people spoke about their being able to pick their kids up, uh, the childcare that provided people lending money within uh, the networks of support. So really, really tight, strong networks of support. And I think this, this idea that Britain's communities are broken, it, it doesn't recognise these strengths that do exist within communities. And policy often fails to build on these assets that are there. And there's, there's not the trust, I think, amongst some policymakers to, to be able to let go and say, well, what can the community do best? Uh, what are the strengths that do exist there? Which is why I, I tried to say at the start, there are fantastic things, and maybe it's the nature of policymaking that you do focus on what are, the, what are the wrong things and how do we fix them? I think it's come through this research as it's not for people to drop into the area and try and fix something. It's to work with local communities and enable that to happen in a better way. So there's a 34-year-old man here who said, the community is a safety net to people. You, you know the faces, you know the people. And it's not just in terms of the support that I've spoke about in terms of finances or childcare. It's, it's a sense of belonging that people get from knowing people around the area, I think, that came out really strongly. There's another woman here who's saying, when you don't have money, it's always convenient to have support. And she was speaking about uh, having to go to the job centre, um, not being able to afford childcare, and having to rely on friends and family that she could leave the children with for a couple of hours because it doesn't look very good applying for jobs with a couple of kids. So it was re really uh, important support, I think. And now, because the research was about people's lived experiences and hearing about the voices of people, I thought instead of me banging on, we've got a, a nice little video um, that's produced, which is on the At Home in Europe's website as well, the six of them, but I'll just pick one. This is Angela, who runs a community centre in Blakely. People are struggling to get by these days, but that's everywhere, it's not just Hyde Blakely. My name's Angela Mannion. I've lived in Hyde Blakely for 42 years. I live on a council estate, and it's where I've been brought up. My parents was brought up and now obviously my daughter's being brought up. It's very community spirited. I know I can just knock on the door and ask for help and I get the help that I needed. I have a lot of family where I live and I also have a lot of close friends um, and we tend to all stick together and help each other the best we can. I've always known everyone on my estate and always been able to go to people if there was a problem where people are changing now and it, the, you know, their attitudes have changed towards people. It's not as easy to speak, to, you know, to confront people and be you know, neighbours. I love the job that I do. It's about keeping the community centre open and keeping the community together as well. And that's a very, very big part of my life. When she says confront people as well, that's just a Manchester phrase. It's not like going up and uh, confronting people. So I think this, this, although it's a real strength of the community that there's really tight bonds, everyone knows each other, it does affect people's attitudes to newcomers into the area. And that can include people from South Manchester, like I am, you've seen as not from the area. Uh, and uh, anyone who's black or minority ethnic is seen as, even if they might have lived in the city their whole life, 
they, they're not completely, and that's quite a visible symboliser. But in all the different focus groups we did, um, and not one of them was on the theme of immigration, everyone wanted to speak about immigration. It came up time and time again. People were saying, we can't talk about this uh, in public, even though it didn't take much for people to talk about it at all in the focus groups. Um, but it, it is a real issue for people, I think, or it's perceived to be. So there's, dif there's different levels of it. So there's a sort of local level where it's the communities being affected and the older people are, are dying that have lived there historically and new people are moving into the area. Um, and there's this perception that's said here by a woman um, who said they don't want to fit in with us, they segregate from us, they want to be different. So the, the, the people coming into the area are making the are perceived not to be making the effort. It was interesting, there was a Moria report in Blakely that we didn't know about before we started the research that had been done about three years before that had interviewed uh, immigrants coming into the area and that they said they were told not to speak to people. So there's something happening where there's, there's not the conversations, even small conversations in shops amongst a lot of people aren't happening. When I put these quotes up, there was this sort of anti-immigration feeling, but the people weren't, weren't of the mind where they're like, I hate immigrants, they're terrible, they're terrible people. There was really an understanding that, the, that people have needs uh, and that they, they need houses. And there was a, I think there was a softness towards people when there was interactions as well. So there was one woman who said, oh, my neighbour, she can't speak a word of English, but what lovely children she's got, what lovely brought-up children she has, and she must be a fantastic mother, but she'd not had that interaction with her beyond, beyond a smile. Um, and it, it was a sense that people's networks were being undermined by immigration, so we spoke to one woman who said, my daughter needs a house over the road from me, and she can't get one. Uh, and that there's an immigrant family moving in. And ra rather than, they did blame that immigrant family in particular, but they blamed government policy. And I think a few people said, it's been echoed in some work, the work we've been doing in Salford, where they've said government policy is making us racist, is making people racist. That it's this sense that it's not the people who are moving in, it's not their fault in particular, but that policy is segregating people or making people angry. Um, I think we could, if we had to distill our whole research into the one line, it would be the one at the bottom. This woman, she's like, we're not racist, we're just resentful um, towards government policy, towards uh, policy makers who, who were impacting on their local community in a way people can't influence. So we, we had this phrase come up quite a lot of the do-gooders, which I think we, we as the researchers, we were do-gooders. Uh, maybe people here would be classed as do-gooders. People who don't know the area who haven't had the same lived experiences of people and even if you're a working class person you're not from North Manchester so it's that that people are here telling people how to live uh, and they don't like it but they find their way to influence it and I saw it yesterday on Question Time which I watched they had I was saying I feel a bit uh, strange saying it but Nigel Farage if you had the, the Labour Party was he, they had Tristan Hunt and he was like, we need an internationalist, solidarity, working class. And it just wouldn't connect with people. It's like a different world. Whereas Nigel Farage was like, white working class people, they want houses, they want decent jobs, they want this. And you, you can see how they've done so well in some areas because it's speaking in a way that connects people. Whereas a lot of policies in this sort of 
jargon terms and it, it, it doesn't really connect with people in any meaningful way. Uh, there's another quote here, a 72 year old man, and he, he was saying there should be certain standards to say at least you should be able to speak the bloody language. This is the only country in the world where you can go on a bus journey and you speak a different language at the end of it. I don't think he actually did speak many different languages. <laughs> But it, it's something I, I remember when we were doing the research, <coughs> Nigel Farage said something exactly the same, uh, that you, there's all these different diversity and people aren't comfortable with it, and that they, they, they feel that they're not being respected, whereas other people are getting decisions in their favour. Uh, so ha housing was the main source of tension. So in Blakely, nearly 40% of the houses are social rented, which has happened massively high, so Manchester's average 13.5%. And it's, these, uh, it's the allocation of housing that is really causing the issue, because I think that's the most sort of visceral policy that people see, that their family, their family can't live near them anymore, whereas they want used to be able to. Um, I'm not sure if you can see it, but there's a quote here, and said, you've got a white family here, a black family here, and this is in terms of housing allocation. They're going to go for the black family. That's 99.9% .9 certain. Um, and then saying a lot of black people and Asian people turn around and say they've been racially abused to get their own way. So the, there was this idea that came up a few times within the focus groups we did that um, black or Asian people would use the race card to get their own way. Um, race card in inverted commas. That, that they, they would use the fact that they were from minority communities to get decisions that they wanted. And that people were saying, well, we've heard this from housing officers that said that. Whereas when we interviewed housing officers, they said, well, that's not the case. And we showed people the clear allocation policy, and it's based on need, family size. Um, and we explained this to people. And the housing, it's an arm's, arm's length management organization. It's called Northwoods Housing. So it manages the council's stock. Um, and they do fantastic work, really, doing community engagement, trying to explain to people the allocation policy. If you go on the website, trying to get a house, it, explains the levels of need, but people just felt that decisions were being made on the basis of ethnicity that was not favouring them. Uh, and that this really was eroding people's networks of support. So we spoke to the, a few people who were complaining about their daughters not being, or sons or daughters not being able to live in the area. And we, again, we spoke to the leader of the council about this. And he was saying, well, but they get houses two miles down the road, and that's, that's local. But really, for people, their sense of local was within their small neighbourhood, not even the ward, which is a few miles, really close to where they are. And that, that's just not possible. There's a huge housing waiting list in Manchester. Um, so this isn't going to go away. They're not, they're not even going to be able to build loads of new houses because there's no space within that local area anyway. And people need houses, so it's not going to go away. I don't think these resentments are going to disappear anytime soon. And if people don't think it's an even playing field, um, even when it is, I think something needs to be done around that to make, to make people feel a bit more happy with things, really. So even though people spoke about immigration and race a lot in the focus groups we did, people felt that they couldn't express their opinions. Um, so they're saying, just because your opinions differ from the mainstream doesn't mean you're racist. We're just very, very worried. And this links into what I was saying about the do-gooders, um, that people feel policy wasn't on their side, wasn't reflective of what they needed. Um, there was a sort of distinction between the people who 
voted. So there was sort of we sort of identified three different types of people, although obviously nothing's ever that neat. But there was um, a certain section of people who just didn't understand the political process at all. Um, they thought, oh well, maybe politics is important, but I don't know what to do, um, and I'm, I don't know which party to vote for. I don't know what I do with it. And what was quite interesting, we spoke to, uh, we did a focus group in a nursery with some of the workers there, and they were like, we we know that women uh, died for our votes and that we should vote, but we don't know what to do, and we don't know whether it will have any impact on us. So a lot of the messaging recently about getting people to vote has said women died for your votes, which people understood, but they didn't realise what their vote could do. And I think potentially in a city like Manchester where that there is a huge labour dominance in the respects that sometimes you think, well, what is the point in voting? Um, then there was uh, apathetic people, often in their 30s or 40s, who said they'd voted for you, and there's one guy who put it quite succinctly, said, you, you vote for politicians, but they all just shit on you the same. And he was, there's symbolic of a lot of people who maybe, when New Labour had come in, thought that something would change, and they, they've seen inequality rise, they've seen jobs not get any more secure for them, and, and that they thought, well, if we voted then and everything was supposed to change, what's the point anymore? And then you sort of had your old, older sort of stalwarts who like, it's our duty to vote, we will vote, we'll always vote, but we're still not happy with things. Um, and I think the, the, the levels of voter disengagement over the last 20, 30 years um, reflect that. But it's also wiser than voting as well. It's people not getting involved in local decision-making structures that are there. So in Manchester, they've got the the ward structures and they have tenants and residence groups that are supposed to feed into this and then the housing associations also got different decision making committees but people don't see the point in in engaging with it and it's not that they don't care i think when there's when people talk about the disengagement from politics it's from the formal political uh process not politics of how would you like to change your local area so when the, the guy that i spoke to before he was saying they're all the same politicians i was like but would you get involved with something if you knew it could make a difference to the facilities for your children? He said, of course. He said, I'd love to do something like that. So the people are interested in making the local area better. And I think looking at voter turnout isn't a reflection of do people care about their local area? And that something needs to change with the, the decision-making process, perhaps. Well, definitely. Um, there's a good quote here from Michael Kenny. Um, and he's saying, concerns raised by white working class communities have been silenced by the tendency of liberals, so probably the do-gooders, to dismiss grievances as motivated by narrow-minded prejudice and ethnically charged nationalism, which I think fits in a lot of what we said. So when, when you first spoke to people, um, I mean, when we took the uh, journalist from the Financial Times who wrote an article about it, I think we took him to the chip shop, and uh, someone was like, I don't want to talk because uh, I'm just annoyed with all the immigrants here. And that was, when you first spoke to people, this was the initial thing they said, but when we had two, three hours speaking to people, or we, we spent a bit of time in the pubs, or the hairdressers, not, I didn't spend too long drinking in the pubs, but, um, spent a bit of time, to, you know, making the connections. But, um, we, turned, we turned down a night out, which I thought was a good idea at the time. Um, but when you start speaking to people, you really do uncover that it, it's not based around ethnicity and race, it's about people's sense that their community's been undermined. Um, they don't quite know what, how to identify what it is that's changed about it. Some do, and it's not that 
people are daft, but it's that immigration people read the newspapers, they see what's being said on the TV about immigration happening, and there's not the same sort of uh, labour movement that there was there explaining wider things around it. There's not the, the parties there explaining, you know, here are some of the here are some of the underlying issues. It's not immigration. It's actually uh, the labour market's changed, and this and that. I think it's, e it's easy for politicians and some people to just jump on this, well, everyone doesn't like immigration, so let's talk about immigration. And then it becomes this sort of self-perpetuating problem that everyone sees, and I don't think that's going to go anywhere, away anytime soon. I think through the white working class research, we've shown that actually you need to get underneath that layer and begin to um, find out what's really happening. So, conclusions. Uh, I think for... But our analysis, how we saw it, people might disagree, was the this anti-immigration feeling within the community was driven by cultural anxiety. So that can't deny that people don't like change, didn't like change in their area. It, it isn't just about the social and economic things. There is a bit of an idea. Our area is changing, and I remember one guy said, "We don't want to turn out like Moss Side, which is one of the more diverse wards in Southland. We don't want to be like Moss Side. We, we want to be like like Blakely used to be." Uh, and want to be around people that look like you, that speak like you, that have shared histories and have those connections. And to deny that, I think, might be a bit too do-goody as well by saying that doesn't exist because it does. It's not necessarily racism, but there's a cultural anxiety of people's communities changing that they're not comfortable with. And part of that is migration into the area. Part of it's that the jobs have changed, but the identity and belonging that people have isn't as strong as it used to be, I don't think. There's a strong sense of identity and this is our area, we like being from Manchester. The community's strong, but it's not as strong as it used to be and it's changing. Um, and then I think mixing that with the social insecurity that I talked around, around jobs, uh, employment, the health service not being what people want it to be, and I think mix that thing up and that, then you get the, this sort of anti-immigration feeling that, that was quite clear throughout the research. Disconnected institutions, so people don't feel trust in their institutions really at all. So with the, they don't trust the political um, process to make fair decisions. They don't feel they're represented within the policy-making process. The media, which I've not spoke about, um, people really dislike the media. So when uh, Simon from the Financial Times came up, we... We'd spoke to 120 people in focus groups and through interviews and spoke to a lot more and thought it's going to be easy to get people to speak to him because he's a, we're going to explain he's a sensitive journalist, he's going to write a, a, a report that doesn't stereotype or stigmatise and hardly anyone wanted to speak to him. We took him to the hairdressers which I mentioned, which I should mention that it's called Chartaz, which is my, it, the owners are called Sharon and Terry, so I just think it's a fantastic name. But, she was like, oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll speak to him. But then when he came, she was like, I'm not, speak I'm not speaking to you, press. And, and, and I think we felt that that was, in a way, her way of being able to uh, have a go at the press in front of a few of her friends and colleagues. She was nice about it after that, but, um, and she's a lovely woman. Um, but no, no one wanted to have the photo taken, so we, we spoke to one woman, really powerful story. She was a 24-year-old woman. She had two children. Um, and she could have earned more on benefits than, than she was doing working, but she's saying, I want to work, I want to set a good example to my children, and this really sort of shatters the stereotypes that you see on all these programmes, but she wouldn't have a picture taken, and she didn't want her name being 
um, <coughs> noted because there's really this mistrust of the press. So you've got the, the politicians, the press, people didn't really trust the police, even though when we said, what do you want in terms of police and security, more police. Um, the housing authorities, people didn't trust them to make decisions. So there's this real disconnection from the institutions that are there supposed to be serving communities um, that people feel aren't. And I think they feel they aren't. From, from us as sort of outsiders coming in, really the, the public services there were really dedicated. They, they tried to listen to communities. So I don't think it's a reflection on the public services in Higher Blakely at all. I think the housing association does fantastic work. But there's this sense of disconnection and I think it needs untangling, which I think we've started to do. I think the conversation needs to carry on a lot further. And then inequality. So people feel that they're being left behind by changes that are happening in society. And the target of a lot of people's anger is immigrants. It's not um, the wealthiest people in society or it's not politicians making the decisions all the time. It's immigrants who are getting that anger a lot of the time. Um, so these are some of the things we look at. In terms of policy messages that we, we were coming out with, it was to look at trying to connect people more with the institutions that are there, trying some way to provide more secure work, but it, it's quite hard within, within the current context, especially um, in the north, I guess. I mean, the, the city's policy is quite clear of that they're creating this jobs corridor and people should go to those jobs. And if they're not going to those jobs, it's their fault. So it's just trying to change some of the debates, really, and maybe before the concrete policy recommendations of you should do this, you should do that, it's, it's starting to frame, well, actually, some, some things that you read in the media or the policy, they're, they're just wrong, really. And you need a better understanding of what's happening in communities which I think um, we're fortunate that the Open Society Foundation funded this project, which is fantastic, because being able to spend a long time speaking to people in a particular area to get underneath some of the initial concerns that people have and really try and pull them out, I think is fantastic and probably more of it needed. And I don't want to end as a researcher saying more research is needed. Um, but we're continuing to work on the own, and there's good things happening. I mean, the, Angela, who's from the community centre, when we first went to the area, uh, the community centre was sort of, full, it, the council had pulled out the funding, and we, when we were writing up, we were like, and the community centre is about to shut down. And we went back just to check, and the, the community have taken it over. There's all these fantastic activities that are going on there. So there is good things happening. It's just becoming increasingly difficult for people at the moment.